The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Take a little time and stretch out your body as you need to, so you feel comfortable. It's okay to stand for a few moments to stretch the legs. everyone. Maybe just a little brighter, okay? No, a little brighter, yeah. A little less. <laughs> this is how our mind works, isn't it? Welcome to all the new folks tonight. If you're brand new or haven't been for a while, we're Looking at Joseph Goldstein's book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. And this book is um, a number of chapters covering this particular discourse the Buddha gave, or a collection of the Buddhist teachings. They're not really sure if it was an actual talk or some um, collection of talks that were organized together around the topic of mindfulness. It's the Satipatthana Sutta. Sutta just means discourse. The Discourse on the Ways of Establishing Mindfulness. So we've been looking at this very well-known teaching of the Buddhas and Joseph's commentaries on this discourse. And we're now in the section, the fourth section, which is the most, um, I guess, complicated and long section, where the Buddha is talking about the different maps that help us to be mindful. So he's suggesting, encouraging us to memorize and reflect on these maps all day long, not just in our formal meditation time, but all day long. As a way, like, when you use the map, then it's different than when you're not using the map. That's true, too. Like, if you're driving to part of the Twin Cities you normally don't go through, if you take five minutes and look at the map, kind of get oriented, then when you just drive in that area... It's a different experience. Having that visual information, your experience in that neighborhood is different than if you do it cold. You don't have your GPS. You don't have a map. It's a different kind of experience. So the map we've been working with recently, and we'll continue with for another week or two, is called the Five Hindrances. So this is the Buddhist map on the five ways the mind, or in particular, the steadiness and clarity and balance of mind gets disturbed. So he basically looked at, from his own mind, his own experience, all the different ways his mind could get disturbed and confused and unclear. And he organized, categorized them into five categories. Well, there's the category of greed. You know, there are many different ways the mind can get caught or affected by greed, and it distorts perception and it hurts. Greed in the mind hurts. This is an insight to actually see both that the presence of greed when the mind is attached to its desires. That's what we mean by greed. So it's not just having a desire. The mind has to take that desiring personally. Then we have greed. Having desire, it just comes with the territory of being a human being. It's neither good nor bad to have desire. But when my mind, my thinking mind, 
gets identified with desire, then we've got a problem. Because that identification with desire distorts my perception. I really want to go home. I'm tired, don't want to be here, something like that. And if I get identified with that idea, that desire, then like everything I have to say in the talk is an obstacle because it's in the way of me going home. You know, and the fact that the clock is just ticking so slowly, that's a problem. It's only a problem because I have I'm attached to the desire of wanting to be home. If I don't have the desire of wanting to be home, the clock isn't a problem. The time isn't a problem. So there's desire or uh, desire with attachment. There's craving as an obstacle or hindrance. There's aversion, the opposite really, or the second half of rejecting the present moment. We reject the present moment by wanting something and we reject the present moment by not wanting something, what we call aversion. So, aversion also distorts our perception, including you know all the different flavors of that: fear, hatred, boredom, irritation, impatience, and it hurts. All forms of aversion, even the subtle, like being a little bored. Being a little bored hurts. It's stressful to be a little bored because the heart, even in a subtle way, is rejecting whatever like it's boring, and that. Energetic, like not liking this, pushing it away, that's stressful on the mind and heart. And then we have dullness. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. More technically, it's sloth and torpor. So the mind weighed down by dullness. And the qualities of mind, you know, that allow the mind to do its business, don't work very well. It's like they're in glue. Have you noticed when you're dull? That both of the both the sort of the clarity of the mind is suppressed. It's like it's fuzzy. It's not quick. The mind, and then anything the mind wants to do, however the mind wants, you know, is you know needed to solve a problem to negotiate some part of life. It, those different talents of the mind, skills of the mind, they just don't seem to work very well. Short-term memory doesn't work well when we're dull, heavy, sleepy, right? Nothing works well. Nothing in the mind works well. Or the body, for that matter. So, this is also a hindrance. When the mind, no, we're not talking just about being sleepy because we've been up for 12 hours or 15 hours or whatever. Because then we know what to do. We just need to get some more rest or sleep. But we're talking about a mind state or a mental quality of sort of withdrawing, using dullness as an escape or falling into dullness because of an imbalance in the mind. This is something we have to learn about. Just in the same way we have to learn how do I work with greed when it's there? How do I live or work with my mind in a way that doesn't fall into greed? And how do I free my mind when it is caught up in lust or greed? Same with aversion, same with dullness. And then the other two that we'll get to in the future weeks, the opposite of dullness, of course, is restlessness. So we need to understand how that operates, how that hinders the steadiness, the clarity, the skillfulness of the mind. How we can live in a way, understand in a way, use wisdom in a way that keeps restlessness or dullness or any of these five hindrances 
from arising and how to unhook when it's already arisen and it's already established in the mind. How does the mind unhook from restlessness or dullness or aversion or greed? And the last one is doubt. So the basic teaching for all of these five hindrances, and we'll now tonight apply it to dullness, sleepiness, sloth, and torpor, the basic food that feeds these hindrances, that reinforces and strengthens and causes them to arise in the mind, and if they're already there, causes them to get stronger and more established in the mind, is what the Buddha calls inappropriate attention. So we're paying attention to the wrong aspect of experience in the moment. So just, this is pretty obvious actually, so if you think of a time, it's nice if you can remember a time your mind felt like it was stuck in glue, really dull, really heavy, really withdrawn, not functioning very well. And often, what do we pay attention to when the mind is really dull? We pay attention to how dull the mind is, don't we? It's like, uh, you know, here we are, trying to lift a mountain and uh, we just keep paying attention to how heavy it is. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to give up. We're going to withdraw from the activity because all we're doing is noticing how difficult this is. So the thing about concentration or that focused attention on one aspect of experience, it amplifies it. We always assume, this is part of delusion, you know, what the Buddha would call basic human ignorance or delusion, is missing this. Our experience, like now you're, you know, we're aware because of seeing, because of hearing, because of other aspects of our experience, we're aware to some degree, hopefully, <laughs> that you're at Common Ground Meditation Center and it's Wednesday night, I'm a human being listening to a talk about meditation, mindfulness, Buddhist mindfulness meditation practice, however you might describe what you're doing. And, um, but this experience we're all having right now is a function both of the sense experiences that are being known and, surprisingly, this is a surprising piece, how much concentration there is. Like, for example, in this great mix of experiences, sensations and sights and sounds and thoughts that are being known right now. Maybe, like me, I have an injury in my hip and knee. So maybe for me, I have this pain. I do have this pain. And I bring, if I bring a lot of concentration, a lot of steadiness of attention to this particular throbbing or aching in my hip, then it appears to be huge, Right? Because, not because it's actually huge, like this is actually a bigger experience than like I can feel the cool air coming from the vent behind me, and I can hear the sound of my voice from the speakers above me, and I can see you. But if I'm obsessively looking, you know, paying attention to the ache in my hip, it seems huge, like the big elephant in the room, and everything else seems relatively insignificant. But that's only because of the kind of attention I'm paying to that. And one of the interesting things, like when people go on longer retreats and the concentration, the steadiness of mind gets, you know, unusually strong because you're in a very quiet, secluded place for 
even weeks at a time, even months at a time. Some people go on many month long retreats. Then you can have like uh, altered states of consciousness because of this concentration effect. So, for example, you could be walking, and for whatever reason, the attention, the knowing mind, just takes up the experience of lightness. Because in any moment, the mind could be focusing on the weight of the body, but that's a relative experience. Like, weight is a relative to lightness. Or it could be focused on lightness. It could be focused on heat or coolness. And if you have a lot of concentration, like, and you're just focusing, knowing the coolness, it can feel incredibly cold or incredibly hot. Or the body can feel incredibly light as if it's levitating, literally. You look, you have to open your eyes and look. You know, no, I'm still on the ground. But you won't feel like you're on the ground because the mind is like completely focusing on the experience of lightness. Or you can feel like you weigh two tons. So there's these distortions. I mean, distortions from consensual reality. Because of concentration. This is why, like, when you get really angry about something silly, it can seem so huge. Like, you got to do something about it. There's a funny story that gets told in meditation circles. I think maybe Jack Kornfield told it. They often, uh, some of the Spirit Rock teachers often teach a retreat in the desert down by um, Joshua Retreat Joshua uh, National Park or National Monument. I'm not sure what it is down in Southern California. And so they were doing this. This, is, this story comes from long ago, so maybe 15, 20 years ago. And uh, one of the retreatants, um, practicing, getting concentrated, and then started to feel disturbed by all the jets high up, you know, because it's pretty far from L.A., but flying to L.A., and, uh, you know, and as soon as you, you notice you're irritated, you start to notice what's irritating you more and more, right? And then even when it's not there, you're like waiting for the next jet. And you're remembering the sound of the previous jet, like what the jets sound like, and it's coming. Can I hear it? Is that it? And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So at some point, this retreatant wrote a note to the teachers, in all seriousness, asking them to contact LAX if they could reroute the jets. I mean, it's completely insane that somebody would think that, but what happens is it just seems so huge because the mind is concentrated on that. And so when the Buddha teaches us that the way that we get caught in these hindrances is because of wrong or inappropriate attention, what he means is the mind is giving attention to exactly what feeds this obsessive, reactive pattern. Whether we're talking about greediness, or aversion, or dullness, or restlessness, or doubt. It's like doubt is very easy to see how wrong attention, inappropriate attention to the wrong object of experience keeps us in that endless loop. Am I good enough to be doing what I'm doing? Whatever it is that we cycle through in our doubts. And then, of course, how do you starve the hindrances? How do you liberate the mind from the hindrance? Well, the basic teaching for all these five hindrances is appropriate attention. Bringing attention to an object of experience, some aspect of experience that isn't going to feed 
that loop. Now, it's so commonsensical that we don't, it doesn't occur to us, like when we're trapped, to use this teaching. Like, to, like if you're caught in anger, if you're caught in lust, if you're caught in dullness, to just take a look. Okay, now, like this would be such a useful piece of information to arise in the mind. And that's the whole point of learning these maps. Okay, so we're caught in dullness, because that's what we're talking about this week. And then what arises in the mind with that appropriate information? Okay, the Buddha says, so just hold out the possibility that he's somebody who knew a lot about his mind in a subtle way. So not just his mind in terms of how his particular mind was conditioned, but about the mind that's no different than our mind. So below the level of cultural conditioning, you know, the basic makeup of a human mind or of a sentient being, how it works to have a mind, he understood it well enough and that he could articulate the process, understand how a mind gets caught up in stress and suffering, how a mind can be freed from that. And he says, when you're caught, that that stress is being generated right now in this moment. So this, this itself is sort of an interesting factoid from Buddhism. It's like, you can't suffer unless you're doing something right now that's supporting the state of suffering. So you may think, oh, I did something a while back that I'm suffering from now. But unless your mind right now in this moment is identifying with that idea that I did something back then, you can't suffer. You have the mind has to be doing something in the moment to be stressed. That we don't believe that. Normally we think, well, I've blown it, so now I've got to feel this way. But the mind is doing something right now. It's paying attention in an inappropriate way right now, which is feeding this stressful state, this stressful pattern. So if we have that information, then it really begs the question, okay, what is the mind attending to right now? that's correlating with this stressful, heavy, difficult experience in the mind. Because unless we see it, the mind can't find something else to do. Right? So, like, for example, with dullness, we're paying attention, like, one of the real patterns with dullness is the mind is paying attention to something difficult in life. One of the reasons we use dullness withdrawing into a dull, heavy, lethargic, sticky, uh, kind of gluey state of mind, unwieldy, not nimble state of mind. It's like, I just don't want to be in my life. Why don't we want to be in our life? Because I'm paying attention to something my mind doesn't like. And because I'm really paying attention to that one thing, it seems bigger and bigger. Like, there's a couple things in my life, probably in all of our lives, that are a little difficult for me. You know, it's just uh, painful. So when, if I look, keep looking at that painful place in my life, without wisdom, without a lot of clarity, then naturally, when the mind looks at a painful experience without wisdom, it's going to do what it's conditioned to do. What is, what is our mind conditioned to do? when it doesn't have a lot of wisdom and it's looking at something painful. Yeah, but even before, it, wants, it obsesses because it wants to get away from it. So we want, the mind wants to withdraw from it. But the thing is, 
when my mind withdraws from what's painful, I'm amplifying that as a painful thing. Because why else would I have to withdraw from it? So when we move away from something, we're making it more difficult for us. This is an interesting thing. Because I'm focused on the pain of that, which is causing me to withdraw. And because I'm withdrawing, that's reinforcing the notion that this is a bad thing. It's a painful thing. I need to get away from that. So it reinforces the aversion. So dullness often has with it aversion, right? Because there's a withdrawing from what's difficult in our experience. So what could we pay attention to at that moment to unhook from the dullness? Well, instead of focusing on what's difficult, we could focus on something else. Here's one translation of how the Buddha talks about this. I think I can read it. So I'll I'll read both passages. First, the one about how we feed the hindrance, hindrance of sluggishness and then how we starve it. And the Buddha says, And what is the food for the arising of unarisen sloth and drowsiness? or for the growth and increase of sloth and drowsiness once it has arisen. There are boredom, weariness, yawning, drowsiness after a meal, and sluggishness of awareness. To foster inappropriate attention to them, this is the food for the arising of unarisen sloth and drowsiness, or for the growth and increase of sloth and drowsiness once it has arisen. And then he says, And what is... The lack of food, like how do we starve, uh, for the arising of unarisen sloth and torpor or for the growth and increase of sloth and drowsiness once it has arisen. So how do you starve that? How do you unhook? There is the potential for effort. So these are the things you should pay attention to. This is appropriate objects to pay attention to. Potential for effort. The potential for exertion potential for striving, to foster appropriate attention to them, this is how you starve sloth and torpor, dullness. So you can just see, like, we all know this. If we can just get ourselves to do something, I've been mentioning in this, as I have given this talk on Sunday night and Sunday morning, this experience when I was uh, in the early 80s when uh, I got interested in meditation, I left my job in business, and I was working for a management consulting firm in Washington, D.C., and I, I was really getting into meditation big time. I thought, oh, God, I can't do this on my schedule because it was like I'm working a lot of hours, traveling a lot. And I thought, you know, i got to find an easy job. And I thought, I'll be an elementary school teacher. I had no idea. <laughs> so UC Berkeley had a nine-month program, started in September, by the end of May, You've got a certificate, uh, you know, your license to teach elementary school. And I got a job, and I was at a really good school. I mean, it wasn't one of these schools that had a really difficult population or, you know, it was a great school. And uh, and it was so hard. I can't believe how hard it was. And part of it is you really care about the students. So I remember at the end of the week, it was like I just didn't want to show up and be aware of all that I needed to do, all the undone things, you know. And, of course, throughout the week, I kept thinking, 
I'll have lots of time on the weekend to get all this all done. But then it comes, and you just like you don't want to deal with it. So I just remember Saturday mornings and just being so lethargic. And even though I'd get enough sleep, I did. I never needed a lot of sleep, but I didn't want to leave bed. I didn't want to do anything. It was like because I didn't want to face all of the insecurity, all of the work, all of the thoughts that I don't know what the hell I'm doing with these kids, you know. And like I'm just like pretending to be a teacher. And any of you who have been a first-year teacher or a first, second-year teacher or third-year teacher or a fourth-year teacher know this experience of like being in that chaos and not knowing what you're doing and really caring about what you're doing at the same time. Because you're working with young people and uh, it matters to them. You can really see directly how much it matters if you've got a creative, appropriate activity and when you're just sort of making it up as you go. And uh, sort of, and then you end up spending most of your time controlling them because they're bored, because you haven't done your job to teach them where they're at. And uh, it's really heartbreaking. So, but once I, you know, whenever that would be, once I actually got myself to school in my classroom and just started doing something, there was lots of energy there. Because at some point, the pain of withdrawing sort of wakes you up. It's like unbearable. This is the thing with aversion and greed and doubt and restlessness and uh, dullness is that they not only distort perception, they're heavy, difficult, painful states to inhabit. So if you're fortunate, if you have some sensitivity, you know, I can't bear withdrawing, if, you know, being in denial and not wanting. So eventually you start to do something and all of a sudden energy starts to show up. This is another principle that just paying attention, being mindful in life reveals. Effort leads to energy. Resting doesn't necessarily lead to energy. I mean, sometimes when we're really, the body and mind is exhausted, it needs a break. Often, not nearly as long as we think. You know, little naps can be quite powerful. We may not need as much sleep as we think we need. Sometimes we tip over the edge, like if we got up three hours ago, we'd be much have much more energy than getting those extra two or three hours. But in any case, this principle that we want to check out and see if it's true for us. If we can find something to exert, some place, some way to exert, to make effort, to strive, you might find that energy just shows up. So there we are, really dull, really kind of into withdrawing. And then the question is, what is it? Where can I find something to exert? a place in my life to exert, to make energy, that my heart or mind is willing to do something about right now. We just need that first step. So often it's like just going and brushing our teeth or just getting in the car. You know, and then you'll find the energy to turn it on. And then you find and then you find the energy to walk into the school or to do the, the next thing. And before you know it, energy or rather effort, is leading to energy. And it just sort of sweeps us along in life. And we know how that is. It's like we can be in a very heavy lethargic state, and then we find something or somebody calls us up, 
And all of a sudden, we have lots of energy to put our clothes on, go do something, even though we were dead to the world five minutes ago. What changes, the mind found something it could commit to and exert to. And that's what it needs. We have to get started somewhere. So this is how we use this instruction from the Buddha and we make it, bring it alive in our life, is we see when we're feeling really lethargic and heavy, notice, just sort of deconstruct that experience and see what is the mind paying attention to that is reinforcing the heavy state of mind. And then just begin to explore. Or you could even, like, when you don't feel lethargic, when you feel quite energized, notice how your mind is always seeing something it can do that's energizing. That's what we call a good day. When one moment after another, the mind is finding something to do. And just, you know, going back to working with kids, this is bliss for classroom teachers. You know, when they've got their act together and the children are finding one activity after another that they can pour their heart into, that they're willing to show up and do, right? And they feel energized. They feel successful. Whenever a human being does something and gets a positive result, we feel empowered instead of helpless. But when we're withdrawing, when we're telling ourselves it's too much, I can't know, we're doing just the opposite. We're reinforcing helplessness. Because it does feel, we are telling ourselves it's too much, and then it becomes too much. So that instead of forcing ourselves to do the thing we're rejecting, find something like, this is sort of a trick, right? We find something we're willing to do. Something that the mind isn't telling itself is too heavy, too much, unworkable, can't be done. And then the mind realizes something. Oh, I can apply myself and I get energized by it. Well, what else can I apply myself to? Oh, do that. You get energized by that. And pretty soon, confidence goes, I bet I can apply myself to this too. Let's just see what happens. And then we do the one thing that a while back we were thinking was just, I can't do it. I just don't have the energy. I give up. It's too much. And, you know, we're all over the place. I mean, how many times today, whether it was in terms of our relationship with somebody or our job or some aspect of our life, we we just wanted to throw in the towel. Now, fortunately, most of the time, there's some space in the mind and it knows what it's doing. Like, it knows that, oh, that's just a thought. We're not completely identified with that inappropriate attention. If we were, you know, then we would have withdrawn. We might have said, I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm not going to be your partner anymore. I'm not going to work here anymore. I don't want to be in this life anymore. You know, a lot of people do that with the United States. You know, they think IRS is corrupt. The government is corrupt. Everything's corrupt. I don't care. I'm not going to be part of it. Now, like, what kind of strategy is that? Like, for does it make any? Does it make your life better? Let alone the community any better? And you know, we do that in families. My family's so screwed up. I don't, don't want to. We do it with our relationships. We do it with our body. My body's just not behaving itself. It's getting old. It's, it doesn't work as well. I just forget trying to take care of it because it just doesn't work, right? 
But see, that doesn't work either. Withdrawing is not an appropriate strategy for living. Right? It's like choosing... I, I always make the joke about doubt. I don't know who said it, but one of the teachers said, you know, using doubt as your strategy to sort of figure things out is like using immobility to get somewhere. It doesn't work. And it's the same with dullness or sluggishness or lethargy. Relying on that doesn't lead to anything but stress. But we have to really know our way out because it becomes a habit. Probably all of us have this habit in certain places of our lives and some of you probably have it in a lot of places in your life. Like That's just the, kind of a major pattern that when it gets difficult, it's the opposite. Of, like when the, what's that, that cliche when the tough, uh, tough get going? Oh yeah, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, right? So the opposite is you know, when the going gets tough, the weak withdraw. <laughs> or, you know, we ignorant folk withdraw, back up, turn the other way, don't want to see. Another aspect of this pattern is uh, um, <clears throat> noticing how we get irritated by people who do have energy. This is sort of a telltale sign. You know, it's not even jealous. It's more like like somehow we want to find fault with all those people who are accomplishing things, who, who get up early. We were having our sharing the other day um, for the community practice intensive. Some of the people in the room were doing that. We have like almost, I think, 50 people in the community for two and a half weeks in June, and we'll do it again in December. We do it twice a year. And it's just for people who want to up their practice. Not the sluggish, lethargic ones in the community, but the go-getters. <laughs> and so every Monday night during that practice intensive, the whole group gets together and people are just sharing like, well, what happens when we do increase our formal practice? So people are sitting a little bit more in the morning, trying to find some time in the middle of the day to do at least a little bit of practice, and a little bit every night, doing a little study, sharing with the group. And John was here. I hope you don't mind me sharing a little bit, John, and part of the group. And he was just saying, you know, I'm getting up at, what was it, 4 or 4.30? 4, you know. And immediately, those of us, anybody in the room who was under, in that moment, under the influence of lethargy, dullness, it's like, you know, it's like, you know. I mean, we probably had all kinds of reactions. Some of us would dump on ourselves, like, well, why can't I do that, you know. As in, like, I guess I just can't do it. But uh, other times we do something even more ridiculous. It's somehow like uh, wanting to judge that person. You know, oh, he probably drinks too much coffee. Or he's probably one of these really ambitious people. He's probably suffering because of his ambition to be the best Buddhist meditator in the room, you know. Well, he'll get his just desserts, you know. Because we all know that greed, greed is a terrible thing, John. And it's like uh, justifying our, our, like, not wanting to take the next step in our life, to wh whatever that is, to sort of show up and get a little energy from showing up, and then show up a little bit more and get a little energy. And so instead, we, because we can use people who, who are doing that as inspirations, right? A lot of times in our life, we have been inspired by seeing somebody do what's difficult for us to do, 
and it, it helps us. It's like the, oh, it was the Buddha, but somebody, I may have been from one of the Buddha's discourses, where if you see somebody jump across a creek or a stream, well, all of a sudden it might seem a little bit more doable for us to do it. But if you haven't seen anybody do it, you know, you don't want to be the first one. You want to see somebody do it. Oh, that's possible. I think I can do that too. And when you hear somebody... So you know you're under the influence that instead of being inspired by people having some success, doing, you know, making some effort, getting some energy out of the effort, it's like you're pissed off by it. And, uh, and you see, like in hindsight, you go, God, that was weird that I had that thought about that person, you know, because I don't know that person. And, why, and you realize, oh, because I'm defending this pattern in my mind. I don't really want to see it. And this is true with all the hindrances. When we're caught in it, we don't want to see it. It's like we need to be blind to continue. Because once you see what dullness is, the mind won't consciously feed that pattern. Same with aversion, same with greed, or any of these hindrances. We only do it because we're not knowing it. We're ignorant of what's going on. That's why these patterns continue. Now, there's one more thing I want to mention before I open it up, because I'm assuming there will be lots of useful stories from people here, how you've successfully and unsuccessfully worked with your dullness in your life, and where you see it, and where you don't see it, and questions. But there's one other place, another way that this dullness arises, a little different. So, three ways, right? You just need more sleep, but we know what to do then. Get more sleep. This, where you're using it as a strategy to manage un- the unpleasantness of your life. So you, you think that by withdrawing from life, you can manage what's unpleasant and difficult in your life. It doesn't work. And then the third is a more technical imbalance in meditation itself and just how you're working with your mind. Because in meditation, in, or just generally in this path of awakening that the Buddha teaches, we're cultivating two general areas of the mind. The part of the mind that is able to be clear and bright and alert and interested and the um, capacity of the mind to be relaxed and accepting and trusting and released. Now, normally in kind of conventional language, you think, well, they're opposites. Like I can either be bright and alert and interested Or I can be relaxed, accepting, trusting, calm. But what the Buddha says, you need both. And they need to be in balance. And when they get out of balance, we can have this phenomenon that sometimes we call sinking mind. If you're ever in a big group like this, like during our guided sit, you might from time to time, I mean, I wouldn't do it very often, just open your eyes just for a few seconds, just gaze out over the room. And you'll notice just the physical manifestation of the sinking mind. You'll see that sort of nodding. You know, people are there. They look, you know, just in terms of their body posture. It looks really like, oh yeah, that guy's there. That person's there. And then all of a sudden you see this. (laughs) And, And over and over again. Because this person, generally when that's happening, the person is in this place, this very specific place in practice where they've they've done pretty well at cultivating states of tranquility. There's lots of calm. 
lots of peace, lots of stillness, but not enough brightness. And the thing is, if you just have a sliver of brightness, it's almost like the brightness, the interest, that active part of the mind, it's inflating the body right, and the mind. And then as soon as the mind loses its interest in whatever it's paying attention to, all that's left in the mind is tranquility with no brightness, no nothing to hold it all up. And the mind implodes like a house of cards right into consciousness. So the mind can slip into a state of trance state or often more likely into sleep. And uh, this actually is a serious obstacle in meditation. People who've been practicing for decades, can, it can be really difficult to work with this subtle imbalance because the tranquility feels so nice. So when we're feeling really a lot of pleasantness, the very deep habit of the mind is, I don't need to do anything. This is where I wanted to get. I'm feeling really good. So we just stop doing anything, like being interested in the present moment. And then you get that implosion. So the mind, in a sense, gets seduced by the pleasantness of tranquility, calm. Now the key here is you have to find, it's, it's the same answer, you know, what would be appropriate attention? What's inappropriate attention? Paying attention to the thought, I'm feeling really good, I don't need to do anything. So you personalize the pleasantness of tranquility, you take it personally, so then you personally think you got where you wanted to go, I'm in heaven, I don't need to do anything, and so the lack of effort leads to the lack of energy. Without the mind making a skillful effort, the mind will collapse. And so the question is, what can the mind pay attention to in this moment? What, can, what is the mind willing to be interested in this moment? Because the mind can't pay attention to something that's not interested in. If you're going to do mindfulness of breathing for the, you know, the next 30 years of your life, as some of us do, or whatever you're, you, know, you use as your meditation anchor a lot of the time, you have to find a way to be interested in it. Or even more generally, if you're going to continue to live your life in a skillful way, you have to learn to be interested in your life as it's actually showing up for you. Not the life you want to show up, but the body-mind experience that is showing up. If you can't find interest, you won't have very much energy in your life. You have to find a way to be interested. So in any moment, so much of what wisdom is doing is noticing what the mind is willing to notice, be interested in. You know, like really want to understand how this present moment experience is unfolding so that the attention, the mindfulness, can be sustained. If you can do it with the breath, great. If not, find something like what's in the way of being interested in the breath. That could be interesting for the mind, right? There's always something the mind could be interested in. You just have to find it. It's a little bit like elementary age school students or students. You know, you just have to know where they're at to know what they're interested in. It's like when we try to teach them someplace where they're not yet at or something they've already learned. They're not going to be interested in that. But if you can find the edge, and it's the same thing for in our minds, in our hearts, and in our body, where is the edge of what we know and don't know? If you look there, the mind will be interested. And that's how you correct this imbalance. 
You've got to find something to be interested in that you can bring that clear, steady, loving, wise attention to and sustain it. And then there'll be more energy. And then, then that brightness and tranquility will be in balance. So I'll leave it here. So we have about 12 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from folks. Please say your name if you decide to speak up. Any questions or comments from your own practice you'd like to share with the group? Yeah, Jalan. Can get addictive again? Yeah. Yeah, so that that could like in terms of in terms of what I heard, the, in terms of the hindrances, that might be greed and restlessness, some combination of greed and restlessness. Like there's a a yucky feeling, whatever that might be, some existential uneasiness of the heart, and we don't want to feel it. So I'm going to stay busy. So I'll find something I want that I can apply myself to. And that's kind of a restless approach to life, always needing to do something, always needing to accomplish something. And we will talk more about that next week. It will be nice to hear from people your own experiences with restlessness. Restlessness is surprisingly unpleasant, as you're suggesting. But we tend not to notice it because we're too busy doing whatever we're doing, you know, to notice. And see, the thing is, because it's so unpleasant, the last thing we want to do... It's just notice how it is because it's so unpleasant, you know. So we are always willing to keep it going because to stop. And this is the thing generally with living in an unskillful way. The tendency of living in an unskillful way is to continue it because the first step in resolving or to transform bad habit is to feel the present moment effect of having lived unskillfully, right? We've got to stop the distraction, which means we're going to be right here in the moment, and this moment is the cumulative effect of having been unskillful. So for just an obvious example, if you've been in a, had a really stressful day, shoulders are up here, jaws clenched, anus is clenched, your body's been tight all day long, and then you go home, and because you've been practicing, you have a little, you have a sliver of mindfulness that says, why don't you just sit down and take a look? And of course, part of the conditioned mind is saying, no, turn the TV on. And while you're watching TV, eat something. 
and talk to somebody on the phone, you know. And then when you start getting sleepy, you know, just, it's okay, you can just watch that show and you'll shut the TV off later. You know, it's sort of like, I don't really want to be here to feel the, the results of being stressed all day. But there's no way for the mind to really put it all down unless it sees what it's holding. It's like the easiest way to release your shoulders when they're high is to know they're really high. And then it just happens. You don't even need to be the one who, okay, now I'm going to let go of the tension in my shoulders. The release will happen in the moment the mind is aware that this is happening. But you could go a long time, weeks, like this, if you're not aware that you're doing this. So that restlessness or any of these hindrances, the break, to break the cycle, like what I do a lot with restlessness that I find useful is savasana. Some of you who do yoga know that posture. You're just lying. The translation is the corpse pose. So you're just lying flat. Generally, you want a mat or carpet, and then often people need a little elevation for your head. Not a big pillow, but, you know, a couple inches, so that your spine is in alignment. So it's a meditation pose. Usually the hands are up, legs are comfortably apart. Often people have a blanket over them. So you feel really safe. But also... For a while before you fall asleep, it's, you can have a lot of alertness in that posture for about 5 to 15 minutes, depending on how your mind is that day, before you get sleepy. So this is not what you practice when you have a lot of dullness. This is what you practice when you have a lot of restlessness, right? Because then there's a lot of safety in that pose, and the mind may be more willing to bring in appropriate attention to the unpleasantness that it has been running from. Right? So then we're really practicing the stopping and the resting and the receiving of what has been set in motion. Thanks, Jalan, for bringing that up. Yeah, I forgot your name. Is your hand up? No? No. Oh, yeah, Stephen. Yeah, because in any moment, like that pattern, like if, if the pattern of withdrawing and being dull has gotten established, even though the kind of cause or the supporting cause was aversion, the pattern itself can get become a, take on a life of its own. It'd be literally, like any habit, if it's done regularly, it becomes part of the character or the infrastructure wired into the mind. So then it has its own co- coherence, it, its, its own integrity. These patterns are, you know, like we have this conventional term we use, like myself, me. But technically, what we mean when I say me, we're talking about these coherent patterns, emotional, mental patterns, that are so familiar that that's what we mean when we, when we say me or mine. You know, it's like who I am. I am these different patterns. And so they have a lot of coherence. So even though it may be related to aversion and the coherent patterns of aversion, the withdrawing becomes its own coherent pattern. And it can then 
take on a life of its own. So even if there isn't anything averse going on in your life, you might find yourself just doing that because it's the habit of the mind to just reside in a state of dullness. It's like, that's what I do. You know, just like people who are hype and restless. That's who I am. That's what I do. Or people who are always doubtful. Or people who always, they walk in the room and they see what they like. And then people like me who tend to be more aversive, I walk in a room and I see what's not right. Why is she wearing that? Why are these cushions not straight? It's too cold in here. You know, things like that. The felt is off the bottom of the chair. You know, who left that napkin on the floor? That Kleenex on the floor? And like, over, you know, so it just becomes, it becomes just a way of being these patterns. But I think you're right. Generally, there are multiple hindrances that are playing together, not just one. Yeah, it's neat time. So remember that there's always a receptive and an active part of meditation. So that's why we talk about tranquility and investigation or alertness or brightness. And they have to work together. They really they need each other. And together, when they're working together, insight is inevitable. The mind will start seeing what it hasn't seen. Understanding will deepen. And there will be more skill and ease and freedom in life because of that deepening of understanding. So the pattern with like dullness, this is how it is now. What that does is it, it it's referring to like you're noticing yourself withdrawing. You're noticing yourself getting identified with being sleepy, being heavy, being dull. Oh, I just can't. And then the mind, there's enough wisdom, enough balance, so the mind goes, oh, This is how it is now. Can this be okay? Because that's the starting point, that honest acknowledgement that breaks the cycle. Because the cycle is, it feels heavy, and because it feels heavy, I withdraw. And because I'm withdrawing, it feels heavy. And because it's heavy, I withdraw. So it's a feedback loop. So we have to break the feedback loop by simply acknowledging what's going on. And then then we can see one of two things. We can see what the mind is attending to that's causing it to withdraw and get heavier. Or we can see what we can pay attention to that is in a different direction, like a place where the mind is willing to make effort, willing to be interested. And that's the assertive or the um, active part of the meditation. So meditation isn't entirely passive. It's just initially we emphasize the passive part because we need, like, before we can be interested, we need a little tranquility. But they really go together. But as a beginner, you know, which most of us are most of the time, we need to have a little bit of tranquility initially in order to see more clearly what's going on. Because the tranquility, like, it's a kind of contentment, right? When we feel good and tranquil, we're content with the way it is. 
And so because we're not trying to control or fix, because we're content, we get to see more clearly what's going on. But when we're trying to fix our life, fix our mind, we can't see clearly. So that's why the first step is always a little bit more tranquility, a little bit more ease, more contentment. And then that allows us to see what's going on. Because it's not even, because when we have a little contentment, there's still the neurotic mind, but there's moments of peace, and then the neurotic mind arises. But now we're seeing it in contrast from the moment of peace, like the moment of not messing with the mind. And then when the next moment of the mind messing with the mind comes, it's like contrasted to not messing with the mind. So we really see, oh, this isn't helping. This is stressful. This is counterproductive. We need to leave it here. It's nine. So we'll just take a breath or maybe two breaths together. Feel the body comfortable letting go of the words. It's really okay. Appreciating these wise teachings from the Buddha passed down generation by generation, women, men, people doing their practice in their busy lives, gaining some insight, living with more freedom and compassion and wisdom. And now it's our turn in our busy lives to practice as best we can and to become part of the causes for real peace in our hearts Thanks for coming, everyone. Always nice to be here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.